Luke chapter 7. For a few moments this morning, we're going to look at Luke 7 and what goes on, another scene there, and uh, then we're going to reserve some time for um, the Lord's Supper, communion. Do this in remembrance of me, the Lord Jesus said. It's interesting how often the Bible says that word remember. I have a confession to make. I'm, I'm having a harder and harder time remembering things. At least once a week, I get to my truck and remember that I don't have my keys. I used to, I used to be able to remember things. And, and, uh, and then we had children, and that ended. I can't remember much of anything anymore. I'm so forgetful, and spiritually speaking, we tend to be very forgetful. That's why the Bible says over and over to remember. Do you remember what the angel said, speaking of remembering? When those ladies came with their, uh, with their work to do at the, at the tomb that they did not know was going to be empty. And the angel said, remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinful men and suffer many things and on the third day rise again. Or how about Ephesians 3? Therefore, remember that at one time you were alienated from the covenants of promise without God, and without, the world, or without God in the world, but now have been brought near. And then, of course, we remember his words to do this, this Lord's Supper in remembrance of me. And so I'm calling us to remember the Lord Jesus this morning. And not just remember him generically, but remember some specific things about him and what he has done. So Luke chapter 7 is going to give us a pretty good picture physically, using a physical illustration of what he's done spiritually. And, uh, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Not too often long ago, uh, I... I was told for the third time that it's a girl. And uh, I come from a family of three boys, and now I'm going to be the dad of three girls and a boy. And so I do confess to you, with that thought in mind, there are some nights that Abel and I just hide under his bed, <laughs> surrounded by his action figures and Legos, and just tremble. <laughs> but but I, it does not come naturally me, naturally to me to, to, uh, to be a dad of little girls. And so uh, one thing that I've done is I've read a lot of books. I just brought a, 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 a small portion of them this morning. <laughs> so we have here by Dr. James Dobson, Bringing Up Girls. We've got a book here called She Calls Me Daddy. I've read them all. I can't remember them all, though. That's the issue. The Secrets of Effective Fathers, The Joy of a Word-Filled Family, Building Strong Families. If any of you would like this, you're welcome to come and get one. Parenting Isn't for Cowards. Amen to that. Uh, the Ten Commandments of Parenting, so on and, and so forth, because girls and boys, they really are different. And so I try to study, I try to learn, and, and, but, but um, it's one thing to read the chapters in the books, it's another thing to have those little pigtail, blue-eyed sweethearts clamoring for your attention. We all know that, right? It's one thing to read something in a book, it's a whole other thing to, to do it. And that was one of our major principles. If you just look in your Bible, Luke chapter 6, if you have a red letter edition of your Bible, you'll see that the entire second half of Luke chapter 6 is written in red. It's Jesus teaching, Jesus training, Jesus instilling principles. And then we get to Luke chapter 7, and you'll notice that there's just a few words in red. And what we see here is that Jesus is both a teacher and a doer. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you want to be a student of his words, yes, but you're also are going to leave the sanctuary. You're going to show up somewhere tomorrow at 7 or 8 or whatever time it is that you get to work or you get to school or, or you're in your neighborhood or you're in your home, and there has to be a connection 
from this moment to that moment, or we have to ask, what are we doing in this moment? There's got to be a connection between what he teaches and what we do. It makes no sense to say we believe this and then go and live a different way. And so Jesus comes down from the mountain in Luke chapter 6, and he begins to enter into some really difficult scenes in lives of people. In fact, if you wanted to, you could skim through Luke 8 and Luke 9 and Luke 10 and Luke 11 and all the way through Luke 22 before the crucifixion of Jesus. And what you'll find is that, yes, he does some teaching and then he does some doing and then he does some teaching and then he does some doing. So again, there are those of us in the room this morning who are thinkers. We love to read books. We love to plan and to prepare and to fill in the blanks of underlines and so on and so forth. And then there are, then, then there are those of us who are doers. And we're just ready to go out there and, 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 and do it. So the problem arises is if you just think about it and think about it and think about it and never do it. And then conversely, if you're doing, 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 busy, 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 but what you're doing is not actually rooted in what he taught, then I think the enemy, the devil, the world, the flesh, they're all perfectly content with either one of those scenarios. The dangerous part is when you begin to know what he says and then do it. I did not come to abolish the law, Jesus said, but to fulfill it. Therefore, Whoever hears these words of mine and does them, he will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Here is he who loves me, who keeps my commandments. So please hear again. He doesn't say, here is he who loves me, who knows what my commandments are. Here is he who loves me, who, who keeps them, who, who does them. So in Luke chapter, I guess I'll take the books down now, and we'll just pack them back in. I got to read them again. Luke chapter 7. Verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray together. Father, 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 guard us, we pray in Jesus' name. From reading this and not understanding it. Or being so familiar with scenes and stories like this from the Bible that fear doesn't grip our hearts and we don't glorify God as they did in this, in this day. Help us to understand truth. And again, Father, guard us from being hearers only. Help us to hear, to believe, and obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in just a few moments, we'll turn our attention to the Lord's table. But before we do that, just a few brief points from Luke chapter 7. Point number one is that sin has brought great sorrow into the world. Sin has brought great sorrow sorrow into the world every single one of us i think in this room are familiar with a scene like what we just saw in luke chapter 7 
a scene where someone's grieving over the loss of a, of a loved one. So let's just look at it for a, few, for a few moments. It says there in verse 11, Soon afterward, he, the he is Jesus, went to a town called Nain. This is the only time in all the Bible that this town is mentioned. And it's always interesting to note what places and their names mean. The town Nain, the, 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 the word literally means green pastures. Or the way that they would use the word is often just to describe something as lovely because green pastures are lovely. And, and, and so, so here is a town called Green Pastures. We, we like to give names like this to towns, don't we? We want to live in a place. The most interesting town name that I found was Lovely Kentucky. Now, I don't know whether Lovely Kentucky is lovely or not, but I can guarantee you that there is some sorrow there. We, we want to give places names like lovely or, or beautiful. Beautiful, that would sound good for the local chamber of commerce, right? Come and visit us in lovely. Come and visit us in green pastures. Come and visit us in, in beautiful. It's always beautiful and beautiful this time of year. And lovely is such a lovely place. Well, green pastures, Nain was about six miles southeast of Nazareth. And again, this is the only time in all the Bible that this little town is mentioned. It's a completely unexceptional town. There's no one of influence who lives there. And Jesus went there. The politicians don't bother to go there. There aren't enough votes there to be concerned about. It's just a small town. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Jesus went there. There's no one of royal descent who lives there. But Jesus went there. There are no major trade routes nearby. So the great businessmen, they couldn't even tell you what Nain is or where it is on a map. But Jesus went there. Jesus goes there. There are no major festivals. They don't even have a state fair. Jesus went there. Do you, do you understand the point that I'm trying to make? The town's not important in and of itself, but it's vitally important because Jesus goes there. And Jesus goes to places like Nain. He didn't in his own day just visit Jerusalem and Rome. or he, In fact, he never went to those glamorous cities like Rome or Alexandria, Egypt. He spends most of his time in places like Nain, places like Nash County, places like Rocky Mount, ordinary places that do, however, help us understand that great sorrow has entered the world because of sin. In fact, the interesting thing about green pastures is it's not too awful far from there that David wrote his most famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down where? In Nain, in green pastures. He, makes me lay, uh, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And the interesting thing is the good shepherd Jesus, when he gets to green pastures, he finds, lo and behold, the valley of the shadow of death is in green pastures. So Jesus is not going to teach Psalm 23. He's going to do Psalm 23. The shepherd himself has come to green pastures, and he's found the valley of the shadow of death. Now, in our last scene from last week, Luke chapter 7, the first 10 verses, Jesus encountered an influential centurion, a man of great influence, a man of great power, uh, the man was connected. He even had the Jewish leaders going to Jesus and saying, you must help this man. And then in this scene, we find a widow, someone who's not influential, 
someone who's not connected, someone who's not powerful, someone whose last connection to, uh, to, to economic uh, uh, well-being is, is dead, her son. In fact, we'd be hard-pressed in those days to find a woman in a more difficult circumstance but than this widow. One, her husband's di- dead, and now two, her young son has died. And in those days, for a widow, in that situation, the stability is gone because economically speaking, her husband had provided for her. When he died, her, her son was going to provide for her. And it's not just that her son's dead, her only son is dead. And so without great exaggeration, it's safe to say that she has no idea how she's going to be taken care of. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. On this day, in this out-of-the-way place, there's a, will, uh, a widow feeling the crushing weight of the sorrow that results from sin. Sin has brought great sorrow into the world. As a matter of fact, this is a familiar scene. A, a, a mom who's now going to the funeral of her son. Do you remember the first woman, Eve, did this? She went to the funeral of her own son, Abel, and experienced the great sorrow that her sin had unleashed into the world when her first two sons, one, Cain, murdered Abel. And moms from Eve on down have experienced this kind of great sorrow. The interesting thing is, it says here, uh, Jesus is walking to the town and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So Jesus is coming into town, a great crowd's with him, and they meet a great crowd coming out of the town. So do you picture the scene in your mind? Jesus is walking, disciples, great crowd, widows walking, great crowd, and, and, and it's sort of like they, they, they come together. Sort of like, sort of like traffic comes to, to a standstill because two cars are in the same lane of the road. And there is a, a projected conclusion to the funeral here. Very similar to how we conduct funerals now. They're leaving the city gate, you wouldn't bury someone in the city limits. You take them out. And, and so, so they're carrying the, the young son on, um, on the funeral procession, is the way we would call it. And then they get to Jesus. And the, 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 the assumed conclusion is they're going to go now bury his body. That's what's going to happen next. This widow, her thoughts no doubt have already turned that way. They've already had the service, so to speak, in the city. And now this is just the funeral procession. The rest is a formality. And then Jesus steps in. Hear what I said? (laughs) They've already concluded, here's how it's going to end. And then Jesus steps in. And so I don't want to stretch the text too far, but I'll tell you this. There are no hopeless situations when Jesus steps in. Because here's the the assumption. This great crowd's been with him. They're following Jesus, and just understand the context where we just come from. Luke 7, he healed a centurion servant, you remember the phrase, who was at the point of death. Do you remember this? Please come quickly, Jesus. If you'll heal him, he's at the point of death. Now Jesus enters the scene, and that point has already been passed. The clock has run out on the game. This is, always, this is, the, this is going to be the assumption of Mary and Martha with Lazarus. Oh, Jesus, if you had but been here, you could have done something, but now he's dead. Can I give you some gospel good news? Jesus can still work even with death. And that's good news for us. You want to know why? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were not sick in your trespasses and sins. You were not 
paralyzed in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, made us alive together with him. So here comes the shepherd of green pastures. Not green acres, green pastures. And he steps in. And so, so it's sort of like this: these two groups come together, and then there's sort of an impasse. J.C. Ryle put, puts it this way. Let's listen to what he says. He's a great pastor and author from the 1800s. Let us never forget this great truth. The world around us is full of sorrow. Sickness and pain and infirmity and poverty and labor and trouble abound on every side. From one end of the world to the other, to the other. The history of families is full of lamentation and weeping and mourning. And whence does it all come? Sin is the fountain in root to which all must be traced. There would neither have been tears, nor illness, nor deaths, nor funerals in the earth if there had been no sin. And you got to be a, a fallen, sinful person to try to now and lay all the suffering at the feet of, of God. <laughs> we do that, don't we? Why doesn't he do something about it? Good news, good news. He has done something marvelous marvelously about it jesus came into the world to save us from sin and here he walks into nain right into the most sorrowful of results from sin so one we see that sin has brought great sorrow into the world and then it says verse 12 as he drew near to the gate i'll tell you what you want jesus to draw near how do you get jesus to draw near well here's one thing the bible says draw near to him He'll draw near to you. So Jesus draws near. So secondly, we see how deep is the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ's heart. First, sin has brought great sorrow into the world. Secondly, we see the great compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just read it with me. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her. Now just real fast, real fast. The world would have taken no account of this widow. The world's attention and focus is set on uh, celebrities and these days and kings and emperors and, 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 and famous uh, uh, preachers or prophets. A, a widow like this? Isn't it interesting how often Jesus takes note of those that no one else takes note of? Remember when he's in the temple? He points out who? A widow. A widow who was probably much in the situation of this lady who came in and just dropped the two little mites. And he said she gave more than everybody else you want to make it a practice of your life if you're a believer in jesus to take notice of the forgotten i love that phrase when the lord saw her did you know that the lord sees you can you just think about that for a moment the lord sees you no don't worry because we get caught up in this don't worry about how the world sees you how your co-workers see you how your family in, in, in a way you understand what i'm saying you want to understand that God sees you, and he sees everything. <laughs> we, we live in this false uh, notion that we can hide things. No, 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 you can't hide anything. The Lord sees. And notice what it says about him. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion. I'm so thankful that that's the word that's written there. I'm so thankful that it's not another word. It's not the word indifferent. When the Lord saw her, 
he was indifferent. It's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say annoyed. It doesn't say impatient. It says the Lord saw her and had compassion. Very same word, by the way, of the prodigal son's father. When he saw him a long way off, he saw him and felt compassion. And he said to her, do not weep. I'm thankful that he didn't just feel something. He also did something. Here again is a person who most of the world would not take account of. She had no powerful position. She was widow and childless. She could do nothing for Jesus. That makes her just like all the rest of us. Because however influential or powerful or whoever you may be, you can't do anything for him. In fact, in the culture that she lived in, she was considered hopeless. When Jesus saw her, he has compassion. He saw the weeping mother and he felt something. When Jesus sees you, he feels something. What do you think he feels? Here's what the Bible says. He feels compassion. Now, Jesus never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His heart is as compassionate right now as it was when he was on the earth. His sympathy with sufferers is still as strong. So let us bear this in mind and take comfort in it. There is no friend or comforter who can be compared with Christ. When you go through the valley of the shadow of death, don't fear any evil. Why? He's He's with you. Excuse me. Really made that emphatic, didn't we? In all our days of darkness, and they will be many, let us first seek the consolation of Jesus. Jesus never fails. Jesus never disappoints. Jesus never refuses to take an interest in your sorrow. Jesus lives to receive all the weary and heavy laden. If only they will come to him by faith. Jesus lives to heal the brokenhearted. He lives to do even greater things than what he did in Nain in that day. And by the way, he did a pretty spectacular thing in Nain that day. That brings us to our third and final point. We see the almighty power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is powerful? Do you believe that Jesus, as he said, has all authority? And Jesus said he has all authority, but let's, let's, let's take a moment, pump the brakes just a little bit, and let me just ask you this. Do you really believe that Jesus has authority in your life, that he has authority? Now, we understand authority, and we often respond to authority. If you're driving down the highway and you see the blue lights, most of us, I prayerfully hope, pull over. You understand authority. When the authorities arrive, you do what they say. But let's be careful about this. As we profess that Jesus has authority, we have to ask, do we obey his authority? Do we forgive like he said to forgive? Do we go and proclaim the gospel as he said to proclaim the gospel? To say that we recognize his authority and then not do what he says, that you see is inconsistent. That's like saying, yes, I recognize the state trooper's authority, but I'm going to fly out of here as fast as I can. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Let's see his authority in action. Nain, Green Pastures, is a little town that sits on a hill, and on the other side of the town is where the last resurrection recorded in the Bible occurred before this one. It was by Elisha when he, you remember this, Second Kings, I believe it is, chapter 4, he raised the, 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 uh, the Shunammite w- widow's son, So Jesus comes, they've been saying he's a great prophet. He's about to say, no, 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 I'm more than a great prophet. I'm greater than Elisha. And that had been hundreds of years before this moment. So I want you to take very careful notion of what Jesus does and what he says. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now I know this is the Bible and sometimes our mind just flies through things, but you have to understand how awkward this would have been when it originally happened, right? 
Jesus comes with a great crowd, and they find the great crowd. They're coming out of the town, and Jesus goes up to the woman and says, do not weep. I mean, can you imagine being at a funeral and this happening? Somebody just walking up to someone and saying, no, 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 you don't have to weep about this. You'd, say he's, you'd almost say that he's rude, wouldn't you? But Jesus isn't rude. He's powerful. He, he, says, he says, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the, the beer. Now, you don't hear it because it's just written, but I can tell you when Jesus did that, here's what the crowd would have said. <gasps> you don't touch dead things. You don't do things like this. This is, uh, this is uh, breaking one of their rules. But the Bible says he goes up and touches it. Now, now uh, uh, those who are carrying the body, they would have poles put on the beer because you touch anything that's dead, you're, you're ceremonially unclean. But Jesus goes up and touches, touches it, touches the beer, and the bearers stood still. In other words, the, the picture is, Jesus said, do not weep, and they're still carrying the body, and Jesus comes along, and he touches it, and, he, and he's pretty much saying, you guys need to stop. And so their feet shuffle, and they're kind of looking at each other. This is awkward. This has never happened before. This isn't, this, this isn't supposed to happen. Jesus loves to interrupt things, by the way. Young man, notice what he says. I say to you, I say to you, arise. Now, there had been some resurrections in the Old Testament, but every time there was a resurrection in the Old Testament, including Elisha with the Shunammite woman, he prayed to God and said, God, please, you do something. Do you see what Jesus says? I say it. I say to you, arise. I have the authority. You know what Jesus is saying? I've got authority over life and death. And you know who's the only one who has authority over life and death? God. Jesus says, I say to you, he speaks, we're going to see this throughout Luke, demons flee. He speaks, the wind ceases. He speaks, and a paralyzed servant is healed, even though he's not even in the room. He speaks, and the dead man sat up. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who, have gone, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection judgment. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. That same Jesus who here raised one dead person shall raise all dead people at the last day. When the trumpet sounds and Christ commands, there will be no refusal, no escape, no I didn't hear you. No, when you hear his voice, all must appear before him. Let us see here in this mighty miracle a lively account of Christ's power to quicken those who are dead in sin. That's the picture here, by the way. You know, it's a remarkable thing. I mean, let me say one, one other thing and then make the main point and then we'll transition to the Lord's table. Is that a good plan with everybody? The dead man sits up. There, there are no, there are no um, little throwaway lines in the Bible. Holy Spirit inspired it. The dead man sat up, and what did he begin to do? He began to speak. Do you see a spiritual application if you've been raised from the dead spiritually, do you know what you're going to do? Speak. You would say it would make no sense at all, right, if this man came back from the dead physically and then never talked about it. Can you imagine that? Somebody in this, I mean, it's, it's, it's a nowhere town. It's, at the, it's in the middle of nowhere. Everybody knows everybody. When they get together, they're going to come up to this young man and say, are you, are you the man that Jesus raised from the dead? I don't want to talk about that. That's private. That's personal. 
I'm going to keep that to myself. I don't, but weren't you the man who was dead and is now alive? I, 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 I don't like to talk about these things. Now that dead man sat up and you know what he began to do? He began to speak. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ, and you just follow me, you've already there, you've already made the conclusion, I know you have. If you were spiritually dead, as dead spiritually as this man was physically, and Jesus has spoken and you've come up out of the grave, and you are now spiritually alive, would you say, I don't want to talk about those things. That's private, that's personal, I don't want to, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Dead people who've been, you can write this down. (laughs) Dead people who've been brought back to life, talk about it. Dead people who have been brought back to life, talk about it. Can you imagine this guy going back into Nain and and, and it comes the next day and he he wants to talk about the the politics or who won last night's baseball game? You know what he's going to talk about? Who raised him from the dead? You know what it would probably sound like? I was dead and now I'm alive. How did it happen? He spoke. I can't explain it to you. I don't know all the ins and outs. I just know this is what I was. This is what I am. You know what that sounds a whole lot like? A Christian testimony. I was dead and now I'm alive. How did it happen? He spoke. I can't explain it to you. Sort of like what Paul says to the Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that you'll just know the hope to which you've been called. And if that's happened, if that's happened, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you think it makes sense that you'd speak about it? A dead man sat up and he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen that hug? I mean, can you believe what that must have been like? Here in one moment, this widow, no hope, no economic prospects. I'm at the end of my rope. I don't even know how I'm going to get through tomorrow. And then all of a sudden, here's her son, the, the boy that she brought into the world, that she nursed, that she raised, that she was there for his first steps. And now he's back with her. He was dead and now he's alive. Can you imagine that hug? When you're reconciled with each other, there's never probably been a hug like this on earth. It's probably never happened quite like this. Maybe Jairus knows something about this, right? Jairus might know something about picking up his little girl when she was dead. And Jesus had stepped into her room and said, little lamb, here's the word, same word, arise. Have you ever heard in your life, now we're talking spiritually, have you ever heard in your life, spiritually speaking, the voice of Jesus say, arise. I say to you, I say to you, arise. Praise God Almighty, it's happened in my life. I was dead, as dead as you could possibly be. Dead in my sin, selfish, egotistical, arrogant, self-righteous. And then Jesus said, little man, (laughs) arise. And that's why I want to stand here today and speak to you about it. Because I was dead, and now I'm alive. Now, there have not been many hugs like this on earth, but there are going to be a whole lot of hugs like this in heaven. There are some people I'm looking forward to seeing and Giving them a big old neck hug. Not a high five. Done with that in heaven. Those days are It's just going to be full on hugs. You know what I'm saying? Okay. We'll keep moving on. I did want you to see that a dead man who's been brought to life speaks. And now the report goes out. Fear sees them all. I used to love October, but I got to tell you, this whole Halloween nonsense is just about ruined the month for me. Everywhere you go and talking about the dead, the dead, they don't know anything about the dead. Jesus is the one to be feared. Do not fear him who can destroy body. You fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. You want to be afraid of something, not what goes bump in the night. 
You fear, if you don't know Christ, the trumpet that comes like a thief in the night. That's what you want to, to fear. But you have to know <laughs> that he who we fear is the good shepherd who's come near. I didn't even mean for that to rhyme, and it did. Fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. Warmer, warmer, warmer. Not quite there, though. Not a great prophet. God has visited his people. Bingo. God has visited his people. And when God visits his people, do you know what he does? Has compassion and raises them from the dead. You want to know if God's been in a place? There's a compassion portal on that place, and people have come up out of the grave. So, no doubt about this, this is a remarkable miracle. But it's not the best thing that can happen to a person. Here's the reality. Sooner or later, now I don't mean to be rude, sooner or later, that young man died again. Physical healing is not the best thing that can happen to a person. Do we pray for physical healing? Sure. But it's not the best thing that can happen. It's miraculous when it does happen, and I love to hear the testimonies. Someone has cancer, people pray, they're healed. And I don't mean to be rude, but still something's going to get us in the end. Something's still, it is appointed for a man to die. Then comes the judgment. That's what the Bible says. And so this young man, you can go to Nain today, it's still a nowhere town on the wrong side of the hill, and he's not there. You can go to Bethany. Lazarus is not there. And as awesome as it was that Jairus got his daughter back, there was a moment that came that she also died. Physical healing, while miraculous, is not the best thing that can happen to a person. That's why I'm so thankful that he doesn't end with Luke 7, verse 17. Well, let's let this educate our prayer lives. As much as we pray for physical healing, we should target our prayers in spiritual resurrection. Praying for the lost ought to take up the majority of our time. God has visited his people. And I don't know this, but, but I, do, I do know this. <laughs> Jesus is going to leave Nain, and he's going to go to Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible says he's going to set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And the reason he's going to Jerusalem is this is a temporary fix. And Jesus is not into temporary fixes. He's into eternal solutions. He came to, came to do great miracles, but he came ultimately to give his life as a ransom. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have, authority to, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I say to you, arise. Jesus went to Calvary. Here's my conclusion. Jesus went to Calvary so that every valley of the shadow of death could be turned into green pastures. Spiritually speaking, we're all headed out the city gate on the beer and Jesus has come to interrupt that procession. He says, I say to you, arise. We're going to pray, and then we're going to celebrate this at the Lord's table. We're going to pray, and then um, in order to kind of transition us into a, 
to, to a time of remembering, which is what the Lord's Supper is all about. The choir is going to sing a song, and as they sing and minister to us, I'm going to encourage you to transition your thoughts, your heart, your mind. It's been on the Word of God, so not transitioning off of that, but to the Lord's table. Who's the Lord's table for? The Lord's table is for all those who've heard the voice of the Lord say, Arise, and you've come from death to life. And what we do now is we remember the means of that happening, that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. By his blood we are healed. So that something much more miraculous can happen to us than even a physical resurrection. Eternal life can be given to us. So I'm going to pray. The choir is going to minister to us in song, and then we'll celebrate communion together. Father, thank you that our valley of the shadow of death becomes green pastures because of Calvary. Death is not the ultimate victor. Jesus has conquered sin and death. And Father, thank you that our hope is not in physical healing. Our hope is not in improved medicine, though we do thank you for it. Our hope is in Christ. That he has authority. That he has authority to raise us from spiritual death because he had the authority to lay down his life and take it up again, that our sins are atoned for and accounted for. We want to worship you as we draw near to you at your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.